Hey again, everybody. It's Thomas Boer, and we are now on to Chapter 4 of Bothink's The Christian Family. And we're moving pretty rapidly through this. And I was thinking, wow, we're going to be done with this book quite quickly. I said the other day, oh, maybe I'll do this whole thing in two weeks. Well, <laughs> I didn't realize just how short the earlier chapters are in comparison to the latter chapters. So according to this Kindle edition of this book, the beginning of chapter 4, which you're covering right now, is on page 29. It ends on page like 34 or so. Well, the book's 165 pages. And the last words of the book end on like page 163. So, uh, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 are way longer than these first six chapters. And so I think for chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, what we're going to do is actually do two full, probably close to full hour recordings, so two hours on each of those last four chapters to do them justice. And it really gets to where we are today, as this is still all sort of historical, you know, lay of the land, laying down some basics, and then the development of the family. And now we've come in chapter 4 to the development of the family in Israel. And, uh, sorry, I, um, have my volume on my computer here. That's why you hear the ding. Anyway, uh, the first part of chapter four covers law and custom among Israel with regard to marriage, patriarchy, paternal authority, women, and children. And, uh, I, I went through this with my wife earlier and then we did some other things. So it's been several hours. So my mind is not nearly as fresh um, he talks a little bit about the first table of the law being uh, the most important, um, but of course both are necessary and important. Um, what separated Israel especially was the first table of the law. That's, that's I, I should correct myself, that's at first what he says. The distinction between Israel and the other nations is especially seen in their obedience to the first table of the law, that there's only one God, there's no other gods, there's no graven image, images, so there's no idolatry, um, idol worship, that kind of thing. God is the uh, eternal, invisible, unseen Jehovah, covenant-keeping God, uh, and there's no other God. Um, but then he goes on and talks a little, about, a little bit about the second table of the law, and um, that Israel was, was supposed to be a holy people, uh, a kingdom of priests, such that all might freely approach God and be separate from all the nations, Exodus 19.6. And so this principle undergirded the legislation for marriage and family as well, even though in terms of the dispensations of history, it reached complete fulfillment for the first time in the New Testament. And then... Uh, Bavink turns to patriarchy, says that this existed among Israel from the earliest time. Now, I don't recall him ever in this chapter or earlier giving a definition of patriarchy. Perhaps he just assumes that it's, you know, at that time, not really a controversial term. And it's, you know, it's father rule would be the, you know, the literal um, rendering of it, I guess you could say. And so this father rule, patriarchy, existed among Israel from the earliest time, such that we usually speak of the period of the patriarchs. Um, it says, This patriarchal arrangement, however, was hardly restricted 
to the pre-Mosaic period, but was both assumed by and assimilated into the law and was perpetuated throughout Israel's subsequent history. The entire organization of the nation was along patriarchal lines, arranged in terms of the principle of genealogical descent. The twelve tribes, tribes among whom Judah was preeminent, were divided into clans, the clans into extended families, and these extended families into households. Each of those groups had its own head, representative, or prince. And all these heads or princes together formed the members, quote, members of the assembly. When they gathered, the congregation of Israel was gathered. So properly speaking, a national government power did not exist among Israel. Later, when the people wanted and received a king, this did not destroy the patriarchal order, but allowed it to continue. So that it now needed to be factored in, 1 Kings 12. The nation remained in all respects bound to the law of God, for, for God was the proper lawgiver, judge, and king of Israel. Deuteronomy 17, 19 through 20, Isaiah 33, 22. Um, you know, just a few comments on that. Obviously, when we talk about patriarchy today, we have to, well, contextualize it. Or, you know, if you want to talk about the general equity of the law of the Old Testament applying in the New Testament, well... You got to do something like that with patriarchy, at least the way that Bavink's talking about it here. Uh, we are not the nation of Israel in the Old Testament sense in Canaan in the Promised Land with twelve tribes. We're not by the point of the physical sword driving out uh, all unbelievers, the Canaanites and Moabites, or the you know whatever you know Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and so on today. We're not called to that. Uh, we live among unbelievers, and we are to be salt and light to them, calling them wherever we live, whatever nation, out of darkness into the light of Christ, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And now that Christ has come, uh, we pray that, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in Christ, right, heaven came down, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven did come down in, in the flesh, in his son. And it's still... Christ now is reigning over all the nations. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And he says that in Matthew 28 and then, you know, launches into that great commission. Because all authority has been given to him, Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we have to filter, if you want to put it like that, or apply patriarchy through the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and where the New Testament church is today versus the Old Testament church. And I, you know, I don't have the time to lay all that out, nor have I put my own thoughts together in, in absolute complete detail on that to do so. But that we must do so, as Bavink is talking about it here, is, is pretty clear. And he's going to do that to some extent. He's going to keep advancing things here. Um, and so let's, let's continue. Um, Let's see, further down he says, well, he talks about um, also the importance of uh, the mother and the blood relationship via the mother. Now, I am so bad with relations, like as in who's my cousin and who's my uncle and who's this. And it, it's kind of pathetic how my mind doesn't wrap around those things very well. But 
Bavink talks a little bit and says, the expression, sons of my mother, occurs several times. Genesis 43, 29. Abraham was married to his half-sister, the daughter of his father, so that kinship from the side of the father by itself was no impediment to marriage. And uh, he references Gen Genesis 20, verse 12, which I think I will take the time, even though I haven't done it prior, just to look that up because I'm curious to see what he wants to say about that. Um, oh, okay, that's just where Abraham's talking. And yet, indeed, she's my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And so uh, Bavink is, is talking about how this, yeah, this was not an impediment to marriage. Um, he goes on, Laban tells Jacob, the son of his sister, you are my bone and my flesh. Uh, Genesis twenty nine fourteen. Abimelech talks in the same way to the citizens of the city of his mother's birth. Uh, Judges 9, verses 1 and 2. And uh, I'll look that up here on the spot if I can. <laughs> and Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem unto his mother's brethren and communed with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Speak, I pray you, in the ears of all the men of Shechem, whether it is better for you either that all the sons of Jeroboam, which are threescore and ten persons, reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Uh, and it, it continues. And he talks about, Bavink does, le Leverite marriage, Leverite law, the kinsman redeemer sort of thing. Uh, the brother of a man who died childless, who was born of the same mother, uh, was supposed to marry the widow of his deceased brother and produce offspring for his brother. But all of this did not at all lead to the disappearance of patriarchy. The father was the king, the master within his family. Uh, and he references Genesis 18 there. And so what you're seeing is, despite the name of the mother and, and those relations being a very close connection and bond, um, you know, you can marry... Um, you know, the daughter of your father, but not the daughter of your mother, indicating that close bond and that, that intimacy there doesn't mean somehow that the mother is the head of the father or that this wasn't a patriarchal, you know, arrangement. Um, but it does give some, um, certainly, respect and uh, dignity to, to the mother and the bond of the mother of her children and, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think that's worthwhile. By the way, the Genesis uh, eighteen twelve passage, Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also, right? Her Lord being uh, Abraham. So she recognizes that that is her Lord. Uh, Abraham would not speak of Sarah as you know, a co-lord or anything like that. Okay, so this is how it was even here uh, as we're looking in, at the family in Israel. All right, so Bavink goes on, says, um, well, he really lays out, I'm having a hard time not just reading through everything here. Uh, I'll skip down. Family and wife, male and female slaves, ox and donkey were all his property, the husband's prop property, the man's. 
The home, the entire family, constituted one organic unit with the patriarch's head. Along with this head, all the members, and along with the father, the entire family, were either blessed or punished, Exodus 25 through 6. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the father, or the head of the home, or the clan, or whatever, uh, the family does something wrong, and, you know, the whole family is punished. You know, an earthquake swallows them up. Uh, God sends out fire and destroys them all. Um, because he's the head, right, of that particular family. Adam is the head of the human race. Well, the, the father is the ruler in his home, and as he goes, the family goes. Now, that's not, you know, denying the individual's um, agency, responsibility. Obviously, many come to faith, even in the Old Testament, also, and perhaps even more especially in the New Testament, you know, Gentiles, others come into the faith who are not, who do not have believing fathers and families. It's not denying that. It's not some kind of hyper-patriarchy, hyper-Calvinistic sort of thing I'm, I'm trying to say here, nor is Bavink. But it is to say that this headship in the father carries tremendous weight and still to this day does. Um, and, and so we can't, miss that we can't forget that and we sadly often have forgotten that um in a number of ways uh, we we want to be we're, you know, we're a very victim culture we're a very um we want to blame shift we don't want to see the interconnectedness of responsibility or how failure to be responsible on your part affects other people right it's like well what does it matter it's just me why does it matter if I'm not a good, upstanding citizen who works hard? You know, what, what, how, I'm not hurting anybody else. Well, yeah, you actually are. Now, the unbelieving society, not going to God's word, won't fully grasp this, even though at some level they can, by the law of nature, light of nature, and so on. Uh, the, the, the conscience God has given them, this common sense and things. But they're going to suppress that truth, as Roman 1 said, as it says, and, and mix things up. Right? But when you understand God's word, and again, just going back to that dominion, cultural mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, but you're not loving God aright, nor are you loving your neighbor as yourself, ordinarily, when you fail to do that, when you fail to leave and cleave and marry and have children and, and work with your own hands and provide inheritance for your children and your children's children, you know, or at least strive unto that end. Um, because this is just straight up what civilizations, believers and unbelievers are supposed to do and ordinarily do. Um, and, and that's what God has ordained. That's the order of things. That's the way things go and work. And to the degree that that's broken down, um, war and, you know, all the society is in shambles. So, yeah, we have to remember the headship of the father and our own responsibility, whether you're a father or mother or child, and how your actions in any position affects others and affects, in some sense, everything. Um, we're individuals, but we're, we, we're not uh, individuals uh, in, in a vacuum. We're, we're, we're connected to somebody somewhere, somehow. Okay. Um, and when, well, just one more thought. When, when individuals in mass decide just to stay at home and play video games and, and, and never walk outside and 
live off of the government. Well, really, they're living off of other people's, you know, taxes, money, earnings. And so they're mooching, they're stealing. Uh, and that's, that's sin, that's wrong, it's a problem. It's not loving your neighbor well. There, there's no escaping this. You have to eke out a living at the very least somehow, some way. All right, enough on that. Um, further down, Bavink says, if in the present day the rights of the wife, of the child, of the servant, and of the laborer must be established by law, then surely this can be explained as due largely to self-interest undermining the moral character of society. Bavink makes this point that just because the Bible doesn't spell out all these rights of the wife and children, servants and laborer in explicit detail in the Old Testament doesn't mean it wasn't there. In fact, he argues just the opposite, that if you have to codify this and put it into law, that shows a degeneration of society such that now it has to be what should be just common knowledge, common sense uh, way to operate. You know, society should do this naturally, does do this naturally, and when it is put into law, that's a sign that it's degenerated from that and it's had to be put into law to check the evils of man. Now, you know, I'm not against natural law and applying that and the light of nature and all, all people and uh, God's conscience and conviction and all of that. Creation itself testifies to the maker and, and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know if this uh, argument by Bavink is by itself super persuasive to me, at least. At least it doesn't strike me so at this moment, not saying it doesn't have any merit to it. Um, but this argument from silence, eh, it, it, for me, it's not the most persuasive argument. But I think scriptures does say enough, and he goes into it, too, about women's rights and children's and slaves and servants in the Old Testament, that it's it's there and it's clear and it's not a silence. Um, and he talks about that some. Among Israel, the rights of the wife and the children, and actually those of the husband as well, were established in large part not in the law, but in the mores. So, you know, just again, the the sort of flow and natural order of things he says, as mores ascribe to the wife and children and children a large measure of independence. It ascribes to them a large measure of independence. Daughters enjoyed significant freedom in the home and dealt in an unsophisticated manner with strangers. Genesis 24, 15 and 16, 29, 10, Exodus 2, 16, Judges 14, 1, 1 Samuel 9, 11, etc. The husband was the head of the family and master of the wife, but when in Exodus 20:17 the law speaks of the neighbor's wife, then from that it hardly follows at all that the wife is his property in the same sense as his ox or his donkey, even as when today a husband speaks about his wife or a wife about her husband or doctor about his patients and a lawyer about his clients. Wives like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Abigail, etc., hardly give the impression of having been slaves. They are free women who are honored and loved by their husbands. Although they spent most of their time in the home, they, were, they went about without veils and freely in their dealings with men. Genesis 12, 14, Ruth 2, 5, and 6, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 20, 16, took part in feasts, Exodus 15, 20, and 21, Judges 16, 27, 
1 Samuel 18, 6 through 7, occasionally brought their own possessions into marriage, such as slaves, which subsequently remained in their possession. Genesis 16, 2 and 6, 24, 8, 29, 24, and 29, chapter 30, verse 4, and verse 9. Um, so women had, you know, rights. They weren't slaves. And so was the, the wife part of the property in some legal sense um, in the Old Testament for the husband, his property? Well, we can't say no when the Bible says yes, but we also can't, you know, conclude, therefore, that the wife was not treated as a human being or that the wife was some sort of like sex slave of the husband. Not that the husbands, the bad husbands couldn't, you know, turn it into that, right? I mean, there, there's no denying that. Um, but you know what's, what's funny is whatever patriarchy is being spoken about today, again, applying it through the redemption we have in Christ, the New Testament era, that we're no longer all confined to the real estate in Palestine, you know, the land of Cain and the promised land, uh, that we're mixed with pagans and unbelievers, all of these things. The patriarchy today, I don't want to say it's a dilution of the patriarchy in the Old Testament, but certainly it would seem to me, if anything, the women have more, not less freedoms you know, even those who, among those who are self-consciously patriarchal today than in the Old Testament. And so for those who bellyache and cry and whine and moan and groan about the patriarchy, the patriarchy, the patriarchy today, I mean, if what is being espoused today that flies by the name of patriarchy is bad, then uh, you must really hate what God ordained in the Old Testament. I mean, God has set up such an abusive structure here, if that's the case. God has just given men where, you know, polygamy is even tolerated, as Bajink talks about in the Old Testament, and, you know, the wealthy and the kings and such have concubines, and that's not, you know, it's not commended, but it's not strictly forbidden. I mean, what kind of God does this? I mean, that's the kind of response that should be coming from those who, you know, try to overthrow the so-called patriarchal movement of today but they don't do that at least not openly but that's the concern right the concern is that wow you think this is bad have you read your bibles right it's like those who deny who call themselves christians but basically deny or downplay very strongly hell and its reality like god is not a god of of judgment have you ever read the bible ever anywhere jesus talks about hell more than anybody in the new testament well, this worldwide judgment, that's just so barbaric. Have you ever read about Noah and the flood and how the New Testament, Second Peter, compares the coming judgment to a more full and final judgment with fire than even the floodwaters in the days of Noah? And so I would say the same thing to those who are, you know, deniers of patriarchy. Have you read your Bibles, Old and New Testaments? I mean, I know they are, but there had, there's, there's this emotional um, gut reaction <laughs> among the women especially, which fits their nature that God has made, but among men too, that just detest and hates this. And are they responding rightly at one, some level to actual abuses of the authority that God has given the husbands and the fathers? Yes, when that's abused, it should be um, confronted and the abusive husband should be 
made to repent and put in prison if he's physically and sexually abusive if if you know the authorities have to be notified of this absolutely uh, the government should be involved and it does not bear the sword in vain but what we should not do is conclude that the whole setup of male headship and patriarchy and that authority structure that God has ordained is bunk and terrible you know, sinners are the problem not God's order. When you mess up God's order and structure, when you overthrow patriarchy, you're only going to get more abuse of, of women. You're only going to get more pain and suffering because now you have sinful men operating in a sinful structure where it's not patriarchy anymore, where they're not called to duty and responsibility and shame, but they're not upholding it. Right Now, yes, there's abuses of it. You can argue that some who go by the label of patriarchy are just trying to set up an abusive system, and that's fine. Argue that. But by and large, I don't see that. What I see are individuals who are sinful, wicked men doing sinful, wicked things, as women can do as well, of course. And I'd plead with some of my friends, if there's any chance that they're listening to this, who I know have been burned by so-called patriarchal-leaning type of men, at least one of which has a very prominent name, a very prominent father, um, to, not, to not overreact, to not go into feminism or egalitarianism or to listen to Amy Bird or, or these others who all maybe have some genuine situations where they have been burned badly. And by the way, ladies, you're not the only ones. I know a lot of women including, I will just say, including my own wife, who have experienced yeah, serious, serious mistreatment by men in authority. I'll just put it like that. Uh, and I know other women who have said and shared as much. And um, they've not chosen to go with the new feminism or whatever you want to call it, right? Uh, they recognize the authority structure of God is not the problem, it's the people, the sinners and and the lack of accountability in the churches and so on so that's my caution we need fuller perspective and don't think that a woman who's been abused can't turn into a villain herself if you want to talk about if you want to put it like that go into a situation where she lives a very vindictive life and perpetuates a lot of evil herself um, anyway I, that, that's enough on that trail all right let's see Bobbitt goes on and says in the home the wife had her own tasks she was charged with care for the housekeeping and thus kept busy with spinning and weaving sewing and making clothes baking bread and caring for the flock Genesis 29 9 Exodus 2 16 first Samuel 2 19 and chapter 8 13 second Samuel chapter 13 8 Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. That's a pretty well-known passage of the Proverbs 31 woman. Alongside her husband, she assumed care of the feeding and nurture of the children. Since the wife achieved her full honor only as mother, she fervently desired children, especially sons. Genesis 16, 1 Samuel 1. You can look that up on your own. Again, not saying women, baby, daughter, uh, daughters aren't valuable. They are. But just look at the scripture. Uh, and, and viewed having them as a rich treasure, as a blessing and inheritance of the Lord. Psalm 127.3. Fairly well-known well passage as well. Um, 
The firstborn son was the embodiment of masculine strength, the heir of paternal authority, the advocate on behalf of his mother and sister. Genesis 27, 29 and 37, chapter 49, verses 3 and 8, Deuteronomy chapter 25, 15 and 17, through 17. I just want to give you some of those verse references so you can look them up on your own. I think that is worthwhile so that you don't, if you don't have the book, you don't have to hunt them down on your own. You can at least hear me rapid fire them off and jot them down and look them up if you want later. All right, continuing on here, the nurture of children, the position of the woman, and the sanctity of marriage. Um, all the children must be nurtured in the fear and knowledge of the ways of the Lord. Uh, we, sh we are obligated to show honor and respect to the parents and to the elderly. Um, Let's see, striking or cursing father or mother was punished with death, Exodus 25, 21, 15, and Leviticus 20, verse 9. And then the Proverbs 31 passage, Lemuel sings in praise of the competent and industrious homemaker. Her value is greater than that of rubies. Her children rise up and call her blessed, as does her husband, who praises her, saying, Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's from verses 29 through 30. It doesn't sound like a woman is a slave, but exalted for doing her work that God has called her to. And by the way, what is, you know, by inference here, what, this is the excellent woman, right? The woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And if you know the context of Scripture there, of this homemaking woman who rises early before the dawn to make food for her family, considers the field and buys it, you know, is a weaver and, and, and uh, does all these things for the family, centering in the home, not that she doesn't ever leave the home, that passage is clear as well, but it's all for and centered in and upon the functioning of the home, the household, not working out in the business world or starting a, a you know, career like that. Well, what does this tell us? It tells us that the woman who rejects that, who rejects the homemaking, providing for the family, mothering, nurturing role, is a woman who is not rightly fearing the Lord and is not worthy of praise. Right? So I, that's an exhortation to pastors and ministers not to patty cake this issue even though it can be difficult because so many women even in reformed churches are out full on in the workforce not by some unusual brief period of necessity but by sheer decision and yeah thrusting off uh, motherhood either by choosing not to have children or by putting the children in a daycare or you know whatever the case may be now Again, we can go into the weeds here. I'd rather not. Are there situations, exceptions, single mothers? Well, single mothers should get married, I think. Ordinarily, the Bible's clear on that as soon as they can. Um, but are there periods and seasons of life where the mother may have to kind of bring home the bacon or at least work a lot towards that outside of the home in a full-time or close to full-time job? I, I Look, we're in a fallen world. I think there's seasons where that may be a necessary evil 
but for many women, it's not regarded as such. It's not seen as a necessary evil, but a necessary good to really fully flourish as a woman and have all the privileges and advantages that a man has. Well, it might be laying hold of the privileges and advantages of a man has, but they don't belong to you, woman. Just as the privileges you have in the home don't belong to the man. The problem is you don't see your calling and your lot in life that God has assigned you to. You don't see your sex, your gender, your femaleness, your femininity as a good and glorious thing. You've bought into that lie of the serpent, of the devil, and of the world. You need to repent and confess that. And husbands who want their wives to work so they don't have to work as hard or don't have to deal with their wives at home or don't have to deal with children or whatever it is, repent, turn from that. Work harder. You know, take on a second job or live more within your means, you know, to be able to work towards where your, your wife can be at home with the kids. Now, when women get older, the kids are, you know, not in diapers anymore and they're all school age and you're able to put them, if you choose not to homeschool, I think homeschooling is a great option, but if you choose not to and all the kids are in a good Christian school because they don't think public schools 99 out of 100 times are a legitimate option, Again, perhaps there are exceptions, but we're not talking about the exceptions here. Um, you know, if the kids are old enough to go to a good Christian school and you can afford it and it makes sense, and because of that, the wife has some time during the day to do some work outside of the home, I, I don't see why, if it doesn't rob her of her duties at home to be a homemaker and tend to the home, why that is, you know, wrong. I think for a lot of women doing that as a full-time 40 hour plus plus hour a week job is is very difficult but a part-time perhaps substantial part-time job yeah i could i could i could see that but again these are really getting to the weeds and there's all there's so many different situations and things to bring into that that it's not always a one-size-fits-all but desiring the women the wives to be homemakers is what god has made woman for and is what he desires. Um, he does briefly, you know, say that women are not entirely and completely excluded even from public life. It's kind of bizarre. I mean, the first part is, and he says Miriam and Deborah, but then he talks about, you know, Huldah and Noadiah function among the people as prophetesses, whatever precisely that would or wouldn't be. And then he says in Queens, Jezebel and Athalia led the people in the service of idols. Now, you know, unless I'm like drawing a complete blank here about some different Jezebel, like, okay, they're in public life, but leading the people in the service of idols, that's not like a badge of honor, ladies, right? You don't want to be a Jezebel. You don't want to be in the public eye. So I don't know if this is like some dry sense of humor by Bob Inc. or if he, I, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. But uh you know it's um deborah was in there right because barack was not doing his duty so when women have to step forward into leadership roles it's usually a severe uh act of necessity because the men are failing or it's just they're taking on you know authority they shouldn't have or leading people astray into idolatry um let's continue he mentions of all did indeed permit polygamy and divorce, but these occurred because of the hardness of the heart, conflicted with the essence of marriage, and were never the rule. Um, 
And he goes on and talks about how the home was, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, protected and upheld. Uh, forbidden with equal vigor were prostitution. I'm just going to list one verse for each of these. Genesis 38, 24. Fornication and adultery. Exodus 20, 14. And various other unchaste and impure acts. Exodus 22, 19. As a bunch there. Leviticus 15, 18, on and on. The sacredness of marriage. This is a very apparently popular little snippet here because other people have underlined this according to my Kindle book. The sacredness of marriage comes to fullest expression in that it serves as an image of the covenant of fidelity between God and his people. And I don't know how anybody can really disagree with that who, you know, believes what God's word says. And, and this also, again, testifies to the... Um, that marriage is to be a monogamous relationship despite the permission of polygamy for a time um, due to the fall and sin and so on, right? God gives at the beginning Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Rachel and Rebecca, not multiple wives and not multiple men, but one man, one woman. Christ has one bride, the church, the Israel of God. Right? In the Old Testament, God chooses one nation to be his prized possession, Israel, not multiple nations, but one. And even in the New Testament, we're all considered a true Jew, a true Israelite, because we we're grafted in by faith. So there's this one people of God wedded to Christ. There, there's a, an exclusivity there, an intimacy there that makes, makes it, you know, special, enriched, and to whatever degree we can see parallels into the picture of, of that eternal bond in human earthly marriage. Uh, you know, we see that, that, that marriage between a man and a woman, one man and one woman, is an intimate and beautiful thing. That, that joy, that delight is shared among each other, and it's, it's precious. It's a covenant made for life, uh, you know, supposed to be for life, right? Between the man and the woman. And bringing in a third party, anybody else into that, is a violation uh, of that bond. It destroys it. Right? It, 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 it dilutes and diminishes and weakens and, and ultimately will destroy that, that covenant bond between the one man and the one woman, one woman. And that bond is supposed to produce joy and life and children. Um... And it's just a really sad thing to see so much divorce and pain and suffering and even marriages that are there, but not, not necessarily happy marriages. And um, it's just sad. It, 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 it's sin wrecks and ravages families. But when we are redeemed in Christ and striving for holiness and sacrificially loving one another and leading well and meeting one another's, you know, needs, which are legitimate, um, it's a beautiful expression that even, yes, reaches up into, into heaven and in our, in our spiritual relationship to God. It, it, it does reflect and picture that as well. So our earthly and spiritual needs are, are, are you know, it's a picture of that, of both. <laughs> and again, if the families are strong and th those bonds are strong, then broader bonds, if you will, uh, from an individual family to extended family to a community to a you know, a county, to a city, to a state, to a nation. Um, 
but if it doesn't start small, it's going to be hard to get a real unity large because if the individual pieces are, are broken and weak, um, how on earth can those individual pieces that have to come together, how can they come together? How can families come together collectively if they can't come together individually as single families? Right? If the husband and wife can't get along with themselves, how can they get along and enter into different covenant bonds in, in, in broader respects? Right? It, it's, I guess it can be done, but it, it's very difficult, especially if it has any real meaning. It becomes more and more superficial. Um, all right, let's continue. Um, paganism loses this concept of exclusive monogamous one man one woman marriage um, and the covenant that God has made with his people and the exclusivity of it paganism turns and you know Romans 1 uh, turns the glory of the immortal God into the likeness of an image of mortal man and of birds and four-footed and creeping animals transferred to the deity the distinction uh, of sexes along with various immoral relationships and acts Next, every male deity for the pagans was a female deity that had relations with him, bringing forth children and living with him most of the time in discord and enmity, right? These pagan Greek Roman gods, they're like super wicked humans. They're like big, fat, powerful, genie humans who are even more wicked and vile. And yeah, mating with each other, sometimes with humans, sometimes among the gods, having offspring that are wicked and vile. And it makes, yeah, kind of for entertaining reading, um, but people really believe this stuff, and I do believe demonic influences behind all that. The so-called gods are masquerading demons, or at least demonically influenced and charged. It's wicked, terrible stuff, but people believe it. And would sacrifice their children to these gods, and rape and pillage and, and, and plunder one another. It was awful. And to the extent that those types of beliefs continue, and Satan holds sway in the hearts and minds of people today in various cultures and even in our own culture. It's, it's wicked and it's not something really to, to make light of. Um, but scripture doesn't, you know, advocate any of that kind of wickedness. It, it forbids it, prohibits it, and shows the true and right way. Uh, and this covenant that God makes with his people, that covenant was entered into already with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and so on. But it was ceremoniously concluded and established with the nation of Israel for the first time at Mount Sinai. By virtue of that covenant, Jehovah stands in a relationship toward Israel as with no other nation on earth. Right? There is this unique relationship here. Jehovah, and we're almost done actually, Jehovah is the rock from which Israel was hewn. Deuteronomy 32.4 and 18, Isaiah 51.1. The father whom Israel denigrated, right, rejected, turned away from, uh, cast aside. Deuteronomy 32.6, Isaiah 63.16, and 64.8. The husbandman who planted the vine of Israel, Isaiah uh, chapter 5, Jeremiah 2 verse 21. And more than that was the bridegroom and the husband who had chosen and betrothed Israel to himself out of pure grace, Isaiah 61.10. 62 5, Jeremiah 2 32, Ezekiel 16, Hosea 1 through 3, and is now jealous of his honor and regards all the apostasy of his people as harlotry and adultery, as sexual immorality and infidelity. 
So you see how marriage pictures Christ in the church. Therefore, uh, marital sins, adultery, also pictures Christ in the church when the church goes bad. Right? And even in uh, Jeremiah 31, it's around that passage of the pretty famous Reformed Baptist passage, at least, of the New Covenant. But right in that context, it talks about God divorcing his people. Right? Because... It's a righteous divorce because he's the uh, innocent party and Israelite is, is sleeping with the enemy, with the idols, the other false gods, worshiping them instead of the maker. And so God cuts them off, cuts them down. Not utterly and totally, of course. He preserves his remnant, calls them the Gentiles as well. But there is a, a cutting off and a divorcing and a casting away of, of, of the Israelites, of the people of God. And don't forget this continues in the New Testament. Right? The, read the book of Hebrews. It says, don't be like the Israelites who fell away because of unbelief. And God shrugged them off. He will shrug you off too, even in the New Testament church, even in the New Covenant, if an unbelieving heart is found in you, if you don't really have the life of Christ in you. That's not losing your salvation, but it is, well, it, it, it will be a co- losing your covenantal status, your membership in the church because of your apostasy proving that you were really an unbeliever all along. Um, And I think that's a good place to stop as we come now to chapter 5, the family in the New Testament. And we'll talk about the Holy Family. And so we'll get to see a little bit kind of how things have gone from the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And, um, you know, like I said, this chapter itself is long, a little bit longer than the one we just read. Um, Actually, it is pretty long, but not as long as some of the chapters after that. And in chapter 6, we'll be talking about dangers confronting the family. We'll even talk about the ascetic movement within the Christian church. And so that's, that's where we're headed. So we just have to look at the New Testament church, and then we're going to start talking about dangers facing, uh, sorry, the, the family in the New Testament, and then the dangers facing the family um, today, which would have been Bobbing's day, but in many ways it's it's still the same type of issues that we're having right now. But I guess because we've got a little bit of time, just to summarize, you know, the patriarchy, it's built into creation. It's built into the way God has designed things. God is a father. Why would we shrug off father rule? Well, God is the father who rules. Why would we think he would make his creation any differently? Why wouldn't men who alone can be fathers, why would they not be the rulers if man is made after his image? And why wouldn't the women, the females who are not the males and therefore not the fathers, why would they seek that leadership and ruling authority in the church especially, but even outside of it? Rather, they were made as what? As helpers to the, to the rulers, to the fathers. And so they are helpers, especially in the home and with the nurturing of the children. And this is good. This is glorious. The woman who does such is praised, even above her beauty and her, you know, charm. Beauty is fleeting. You know, charm is deceitful. But a woman who fears the Lord, that lasts until the very end, until Christ calls that woman home. And as you know from other passages in Proverbs, it says over and over, it is better to dwell in the corner, you know, on the corner of a housetop than with a contentious woman. 
A contentious, contentious woman is not a Proverbs 31 woman. It is not a submissive woman. It is not a feminine woman. It's a very aggressive, manly type of woman <laughs> trying to be a second head, a competitor in the home. And that is a problem. It's unbiblical. It's ugly. And if, if women want to complain that that's one-sided, well, in the Proverbs was written by Solomon, who you could say, what a pig Solomon was. He had, what, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Well, God still chose that pig, Solomon, to write down his words. Uh, you know, give, gave, God, gave Solomon this wisdom. He didn't always live, live out of his knowledge and wisdom consistently, of course. Solomon, he was a sinner. But God had chose him, chose, chose Solomon to say these things, to teach us these things, and they're good. So like I said, if, if, if you have a problem because some leaders today have done terribly wicked things, male ministers doing very wicked things with their female, you know, whatever babysitters on their flights and their travels or, you know, have abused their power, that should be condemned and not condoned, and I would say in the New Testament era with the fuller outpouring of the Spirit that it's even more wicked and shameful than in the Old Testament time, even for like a Solomon or a David who was no, you know, the more I study David and think about it, the less and less I see David as this, you know, simply pure, except for that one little Bathsheba instance. No, it, it's David was a, quite the sinner as well, uh, a bad father too. Um, anyway, that's getting really far afield here, but you know, God used these wicked men for great things. And David still was called a man after God's own heart. And Solomon, you know, the wisest who ever lived at that time. Um, the problem is not patriarchy. The problem is the sinners. You're only going to exacerbate the sin and the sinners when you overthrow God's order of patriarchy. We need to drill that into our minds and press for a more godly and biblical and faithful patriarchy a righteous ordering of the family according to God's word, the Christian family that Bavink is seeking to uh, uphold here and and not shirk it off because the world has shirked and shirked and shaken it away completely and the church sadly is being pulled with them by and large more than resisting and it seems like the few who are, who are trying to resist are being shot down by even re relatively conservative people within reformed churches and denominations and so it's just a tragic terrible situation that we are in which is why i've really come to believe this is a greater issue than even telling people about you know you must be a calvinist and believe in the doctrines of grace that's absolutely important must be taught as well but but if they believe that but still don't know what it means to be a man and a woman they're up the creek without a paddle better they know first what it means to be a man and a woman honestly uh, than to even understand all the way fully and clearly election the sovereignty of god and so on and so forth. Of course, they are going to connect in the end anyways. All right, let's wrap it up here, and next time we'll uh, continue in Bob Inks, The Christian Family. Thanks.